I was just going to ask, like, before we go into this week's episode, can mm-hmm. I like, go on, like, a bit of a rant about this whole Cuba thing that's been going on? Because I'd love mm-hmm. that. That sounds great. The stuff that's going on right now, like, with Cuba is, like, probably the perfect litmus test, I think, for anybody who's claiming to be part of the quote-unquote left. Because, like, the Cuban Revolution is, I think you can make a pretty strong case, the most democratic revolution in history. Like, the because, I mean, you know, one of the things that you'll see as a difference between, like, MLs and MLMs is the debate over the primacy of, you know, the power of the productive forces versus the primacy of the relations of production. And, like, the masses in Cuba, the actual people, have more direct participation in both the direction of like production at, you know, whatever industry they're working at and Mm -hmm. the government, then, I mean, look, I I don't know every bit of world history, but then any modern society that I'm aware of, like when they made their new constitution in 2019, the Cuban communist party went to every single town and village in the country for input. They took thousands hundreds of thousands of comments uh, critiques recommendations for what people wanted to include in their constitution and so they took all that put it all together and they got eight million of the island's 11 million people to vote for it yeah. and like meanwhile in the united states they don't even ask my opinion when there's a parking referendum in my neighborhood <laughs> yeah, right bad or or you know, are like we should uh that's that's not going to work we should do the based on the opinion of 20 white guys who own a bunch of slaves <laughs> right uh, and like a couple hundred years ago that vote alone which is by no means an exception like that's really an example of how their democracy works but that one vote is more democracy than any u.s citizen has ever seen in their lifetime <laughs> and Absolutely. really in its, in its entire history and like despite the the most ridiculous and and brutal and illegal uh state of siege that they've been under it, it for 60 years they have a higher life expectancy higher literacy lower infant mortality rate than the u.s and they don't have any homelessness so there's this perception you know pushed by the state department and the cia that you know all of these problems are because of the communist dictatorship but and so like i look i'm not surprised when you see these narratives coming out of the right coming out of the government that's normal but the most frustrating thing is seeing people that are you know calling themselves quote unquote leftists boosting all this fucking sos cuba shit and talking about how we need to you know send in fucking f35s to do you know airstrikes in cuba and that's going to help the people there. <laughs> like well the the, the out and out ones are like they're bad but the ones that really get under my skin are the ones who are like let's have a nuanced discussion about what's really going on in yeah. cuba and it's it's like, okay, let's have a nuanced discussion about what's really going on in Cuba and let's have a nuanced discussion about the relationship of their economic troubles and their social issues that they are actually facing to the U.S. sanctions and embargoes and bans on uh, U-turn sales and bans on and secondary embargoes and everything that comes with that. Like, it's the same, in a lot of ways, it's the same fucking conversation we are always having to have about the, the DPRK, which is like, right. yes, there are problems. Yes, there are like a functional 
traditionally, you know, impoverished or underdeveloped or third world or however you want to put it country. But whose fucking fault is that? Like, if you were really nuanced, you would be out here saying, like, in the grand scheme of global politics, especially in relation to the United States, Cuba is unambiguously a force for good and social change and progress. Like, like. Cute, like for the, this is the thing, like you know, I, I'll I'll defend you know as an ML, I'll defend pretty much every uh, actually existing socialist state, but all of them have contradictions, and the one with the fewest is Cuba. Like Cuba literally is the most internationalist state in modern history. They directly yep. assisted with the liberation of multiple countries in Africa, sending their troops to fight in the Angolan civil war to help you know defeat. CIA, South African and Rhodesian mercenaries who were trying mm-hmm. to, you know, prevent that country from actually liberating itself. The three main flavors of fascism. <laughs> right. They help liberate Mozambique. They they send medical brigades around the world for free to help out like millions of children around impoverished countries in the world every year who would otherwise have absolutely no access to medical care, saving, you know, untold numbers of lives. And now, you know, you have all these fucking like left influencers and shit like, you know, vouching into the usual suspects like that. But you even have, like you said, it's, it's the people though. Well, you know, I support the people, but not the government. Then you don't, then you either don't know anything about the fucking country or you are lying to everyone because the people of Cuba support their government. So by making that sort of rhetoric that jives directly with the U S state department, you're going to make me bring back a term that I don't like using because it got really misused in the sixties. But I think that this is a perfect time to bring back the term social imperialist, which, you know, was originally misused during some fights between the PRC and the USSR during the Sino-Soviet split. But what it really refers to nowadays is people, and this was, you know, the, the basis for the term, who are socialist in words, but imperialist in deeds. And you see this over and over and over again in the U.S. with people talking about how, we, oh, you know, we want to we wanna stop U.S. militarism. We want to stop intervention in the, in, in, all around the world from the U.S. We, we want to be more like Denmark. We want to be, you know, right. the, the happier, kinder face of non-authoritarian socialism. And yet every single time the United States launches one of these information warfare campaigns aimed yeah, they, at, they you know, eat it up. Yeah. yeah, they they eat it up, regurgitate it every single time. And like while this, saying that they don't while saying, you know, well, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm as I'm as like anarchist anti-authoritarian, anti-hierarchical, whatever is they come. But you can't just be like, okay, that means structure bad. You have to really think about what that means. And if you believe in direct democracy, if you believe in direct worker ownership of the means of production, if you consider yourself a syndicalist or a council communist, where to you, direct democratic involvement by the working and proletarian classes is the primary object of revolutionary strategy, like it's what you're aiming for, then countries like Cuba and Vietnam should not be some kind of like weird evil to you. You should be like, these are great examples that we should be looking to for leadership alongside whatever your pet favorite project is, like Rojava or the Zapatistas, which I like. But like, let's be real. Cuba is doing more for more people than almost any other socialist project in the world, except arguably China, just because of the scale it's occurring on. Yeah. And and also, I mean, the other thing that I think that this situation should be a perfect, you know, illustration of is 
I, I, I mean, not that it's one that I think many listeners of our show necessarily bought into, and I think we've been pretty open with our revolutionary politics on this, mm-hmm. but like the whole concept of we're going to work within the Democratic Party and we're going to push no. it left. No. Guess what? No. This is your chance to jump off that ter- that train. True. No shame whatsoever for being on it before. Absolutely none. Totally oh, yeah. fine. Totally get it. But like when you see everyone without exception in the squad, like not just AOC, but also Ilhan Omar retweeting all this, you know, SOS Cuba. We have to get rid of the dictatorship shit. Like that is what is telling you that like (laughs) you cannot do that. It is a bourgeois party and the only people it allows into it, the only people it will ever allow (laughs) to have any sort of platform within it are those that conform to its ideology, which is a fundamentally imperialist ideology. Like, absolutely. I know, you know, people don't like to necessarily pull out these quotes because they think it was kind of an ultra left period of time. But like this to me is continuing illustration that social democracy is objectively the moderate wing of fascism. Like if you if your, you know, plan for making a kinder, gentler, less oppressive society does not involve a complete dismantling of United States imperialism, which is not just, by the way, withdrawing, you know, the 800 military bases, although that would be a great start. But it also means stopping all United States intervention everywhere. And that includes these PSYOP campaigns. Like people do not understand how color revolutions work. And I don't know, I can link people to like the Radio Warner episode about it a bunch. Maybe I'll do like a, a screed about it at some point on overtime episode. But like we we have to get past like the because like we have these arguments every single time one of these things happen and the same groups of people never learn from it. And it's so fucking right. frustrating. Like you can stand with Cuba and the revolution or you can stand with the U.S. and global imperialism. That's it. Those are your options. There is no third way where like you're going to get this magical concept of like the perfect state that has no authoritarian structure whatsoever and then somehow manages to survive the onslaughts of global imperialism that doesn't exist yeah i mean i i see uh, we saw well at least uh, in a couple different places people saying oh yes like something something pro-democracy things like we already outlined how the Cuba is more of a democracy than anything we've ever experienced. But then when when I said that, like, you know, this is like an op or, or whatever, and they're like, what proof do you have? And I'm like, I I don't know how to tell you this, <laughs> but, but the proof is in every single time this has ever happened in the past. And then not only that, there is like like base levels of, of clear funding for a propaganda campaign that that's that's ready readily available. But then you want to say, oh, is that the CIA? Like, yes, because it always <laughs> yeah. is. Don't, it yeah, don't wait. Is. <laughs> don't wait forty or fifty years for the documents to become declassified, so you can say like, "Oh well, that was uh, back then." I'm sure the CIA yeah, has shaped yeah. up in the meantime. Like, know now that this is a pattern of behavior that is that is completely pervasive. It is it is not an exception. It is the standard for color revolutions and so called protests and people's movements in socialist countries to be, if not 
initially instantiated by the CIA, which they aren't all the time, Correct. quickly absorbed into what the CIA is attempting to do. I mean, look well, at Hong Kong. And the organizations you know? that exist are, are, are usually like vestigial structures of some sort of CIA project. Well, and a lot of times, here's the other thing. If you're like, oh, well, I'm just supporting the anarchist resistance against this. I'm just supporting the Marxist uh, dissidents in this country. Like, right. look at socialist countries. There are political spaces for Marxists who think the country isn't doing the right Marxism. Yeah. There are often political spaces for anarchists to organize and do community activities because these ideologies are not seen as counter-revolutionary by the, the governments of socialist nations. But when they're but when the CIA comes in and starts funding people and the, the protesters start waving American flags and right. fucking blue lives matter flags, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that then was like wild. We should all know something fishy is up. We should all know that this stinks of, of American intelligence. Yeah, also, if you ever see any of those flags, those two flags John described, the Blue Lives Matter flag or the American flag, those are fascist flags. Just always, always look at them that way. And like, like you said, like, of course, there were absolutely, you know, legitimate protesters who were at some of the beginning of these, you know, much smaller than reported protests. Mm-hmm. And the government of Cuba, including the president himself, like President Diaz-Canel went, there's pictures of this and there's videos of it. He went down to some of these protests to talk with the protesters and find out, you know, what they were asking for. And a lot of them are like, you know, they're frustrated, they're mad about shortages. And what are those shortages caused by? Like, they... Mm-hmm. Cuba, who have managed to develop one of the world's most premier biomedical industries, despite, you know, you know, crippling sanctions, has developed multiple vaccines for COVID-19 that are just as good as, you know, anything else produced by any Western countries. But they've been unable to get them to most of their population because the blockade prevents them from importing fucking syringes. Right. And other, you know, like raw materials that they need to, to make the Abdallah and, and Soberana uh, vaccines that they've developed. And so it I, it I totally get why some people would be frustrated with these conditions. But, you know, you have to differentiate when you actually dig into this stuff critically. You could like if you actually look at sources, you know, like Telesor and, and, and other sources like from the Latin American region, you can see like the difference between the the people who are just frustrated with the conditions created by the blockade, which is completely understandable. And and even in his speech at the time, President Diaz-Canel specifically laid out this distinction. He said, he's like, yes, some people are frustrated with this. We totally understand it. We're going to work with them. We're going to try and make some changes and, and, and address this as best as we possibly can. But then there are also those elements who have tried to hijack that, that understandable frustration to use it to blame the socialist system and try and overthrow the government. And we have seen in country after country after country in Eastern Europe and, and, and you know, around the world when you have like this sort of color revolution operation. I mean, Eastern Europe is really the, the, the prototype for this mm-hmm. where – they come in with the CIA's training to co-opt ex- totally legitimate existing movements and move them into a neoliberal U.S.-friendly direction that then leads to the installation of a regime that just turns out to be, surprise, surprise, a puppet Neo- of the West, yeah, which completely dismantles like every gain that any people's movements in those countries has managed to do. And, and it's really, really frustrating to see people like, you know, not be able to notice this pattern after it happens. Like we see this should happen multiple times a year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 
So like, well, there's always a bad guy. It's it's Iran, and then it's China, and then it's Venezuela, and then it's Cuba, and then it's Syria, and then it's you know it, the North North Korea just fills in the gaps whenever we don't <laughs> have one. We default to them, uh, you know, or Russia or whoever. It doesn't always have to be a socialist country, but like, yeah, the United States it, it thrives on this because if we think that there's some like magical evil happening in this little island with a few million more people in it than New York City, right. we don't have to pay attention to the fact that our country of 355 million people is killing millions of people at a time, both within our own borders and especially outside of them. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> I guess I just really would just would want to tell people, like, be very critical in your media analysis. Listen to citations needed. They're a big help for that sort of thing, mm-hmm. for decoding, you know, the way that the media indoctrinates us. And 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 really try and look at things through a materialist, like, class lens. And because, like they're going to keep doing this shit. <laughs> and if yeah. we keep falling for it, it's just going to embolden them. Well, and if you yeah. want to have an opinion about what's going on in Cuba now, like go ahead and do yourself a favor and listen to like a fucking rev left radio episode yeah. on the history of Cuba. Do a little research on what the Batista regime was like before the revolution, you know, look into the mob ties, look into all of the different ways that Cuba was used as a haven for the American rich before the communist revolution there. Like there's a lot of factors that might influence your like baseline understanding and get you into a better, more materialist place with regards to what's going on in Cuba yeah. today. So welcome to work stuff. Well, and speaking <laughs> of getting to a better, more materialist place, let's talk about some stuff that we normally talk about that we're a little more familiar with. do the intro <laughs> yeah i mean welcome to work stoppage everybody the premier podcast to dispel imperious lies about socialist <laughs> nations no i mean most of the time we're we're a, a labor and, and union activity podcast but it's worthwhile to take some time out and talk about stuff that is important to us for the exact same reasons that we are concerned with the labor movement in the united states today well that's worker news. I mean I think that yeah. that's I think that really on on a whole what we do is worker news. And True. when it comes to socialist movements, those are workers who have been, you know, des- deserve the the liberation that they fought for and and more and and we got to stand with them as fellow workers. Absolutely. And, yeah. And speaking of workers who've just uh recently achieved a victory that they've been fighting for for quite some time. Uh, we got a follow-up here from a story that we just, you know, talked about last episode. Um, the Cook County uh, worker strike that's been going on for a little over two weeks in Chicago uh, has now ended as SEIU Local uh, 73 has entered into a tentative agreement with the county on most of their issues. And it sounds like, for the most part, this is pretty much a, a solid win for the workers. We, we had a quote here from the SEIU Local 73 president, uh, Diane Palmer, who said, Cook County workers showed real bravery by going out on strike to demand respect from the county. This contract has real wins for workers that they should be proud of as it turns the page on decades of Local 73 members being considered second-class citizens at the county. Hell Yeah. I mean, an 18-day strike is nothing to sneeze at, and uh, it's really cool to see that these workers were willing to go to that length, Uh, but it's also insane that they had to be out there for over two weeks, two and a half weeks, just to uh, win these concessions. And this covers 
public workers across pretty much all of Cook County. So this is people who are doing rehabilitation programs in jails. These are social services workers. These are people who are working in hospitals. Yep. Um, does this include like bus drivers and transportation uh, I'm workers? I'm not well? sure. I know it includes you know people like county clerks and that 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 okay. sort of stuff. But it, City a lot hall of workers. Yeah. Yeah, like sanitation workers at any various you know of the the county facility uh, like facilities. And it, yeah, like. Uh, I know an 18 day strike may not necessarily sound that long when, you know, when compared to some of the ridiculously long strikes that we've talked about be mm -hmm. before, but uh, these ones specifically when it's a public worker strike, I always get like a little bit extra frustrated because mm -hmm. I'm just like with the, the city and the County and the, you know, the state level, it's like, theoretically, you're not supposed to be doing uh, running this based on, you know, squeezing as much as possible out of your workers like every, you know, private business is. And yet, you know, we in the previous stories we covered on this, we talked about the complete intransigence of the county. And so mm -hmm. like all all credit to the the Cook County workers for for staying out there for that long yeah. and, and forcing through these victories. I love the quote that was pulled for this. I'll just do the, the quote. This fight gave us courage, uh, taught us how to fight and believe in ourselves. The issue was never about going to work. It was about the conditions we were working in. Uh, we built solidarity across the, uh, across the county, job titles, education levels, and we became a family. We are, I can walk around with my head held high. This is a movement, not a moment, and we will never be the same. And I think that that right there, the idea that like they've started building something and, and uh, and this is very reminiscent. I, as I said before about the organization of the teachers union in Chicago as well, where, you know, they first, they were incredibly unorganized and having constant school closures or, and, and how they built up solidarity throughout the entire city. And, uh, and this is also very similar to that. And that they're building up solidarity through their entire, through the entire Cook County and and how that is how ah uh, gosh i want i want to say like it builds a permanence a structure that is always able to enforce the demands of the workers and and like the idea that this you know strike they got what they got what they wanted and and that um there's there's an acknowledgement that this will come again and that it is a is a constant struggle and and that acknowledgement i think is so important and when you see that in a movement like this especially from an SEIU local um because they're not always known for that. Uh, yeah. but, but when it comes to like rank, some rank and file, like powerful rank and file unions uh, within the SEIU, they, those do exist. And this is one of them. And it's very awesome to see. Yeah. I mean, it's really cool to see whenever people take uh, union organizing and, and labor campaigns and they don't look at them like the way maybe we think about a presidential campaign, which is where like you campaign for X amount of time, you supply X amount of resources, you win or you don't, it's over. It's like, right, that's exactly. not, it's absolutely not what a labor movement should be if it wants to be successful. A labor movement should be something that is constantly building in intensity and when it when it gets what it wants, it it should it shouldn't take that as an opportunity to be like, okay, we got it. Let's cool down. It's like, okay, we got it. Let's see what else we can get. Let's go further and get more because like I've I've often said this, that's always the attitude the company has towards you as the workers or the state mm -hmm. or whoever your employer right. is and you Absolutely. can't be letting your guard down just because you won 
one particular battle or another. And it's very encouraging to see that like, this is a county wide movement, uh, among workers from all kinds of, of, you know, superficially disparate, uh, work sectors who have managed to come together for this. And I think that like, there is a, there's a social slash cultural element of very visible solidarity to that, that really encourages people and also helps, uh, bring people in to the labor movement. Yeah. And so like, this tentative agreement wins like better pay equity across multiple areas of the county, hazard mm-hmm. pay for workers during the pandemic, uh, seniority prioritization for hiring and promotions. And then a, there's a bunch of the other issues that they were focusing on, which because of their strike, they've managed to now force the county into uh, neutral arbitration, which, you know, arbitration has its ups and downs is certainly not a perfect process, but right. considering, you know, before the strike, <laughs> the county was just basically telling them we're going to fuck off for 10 months of negotiations. And they broke that backlog with this strike. And, and like you're saying, like the, exactly what they're talking about, like the, by building that sort of worker power and, and now having directly experienced it puts them in a much stronger position going forward. So that right. if, you know, the arbitration doesn't work out, they now know like, we have the power to go out there and shut this shit down to make sure that we get what we need. And and so, yeah, it's, it's always good to see this sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of building consistent power and, and also speaking uh, relevant to the Cuba conversation we were having earlier, talking about direct democracy and like horizontal rank and file involvement in decision-making, uh, we want to talk about the Teamsters convention, which has been uh, outrageous in a really, really great way. Uh, that has been, um, when, when did it actually occur? I think it was uh, like this, a week or two ago. Okay. Yeah. It was, a, yeah. it was a few weeks ago. Cause like the big story coming out of it was, you know, Teamsters vote to, to unionize Amazon. That was like the first thing that we talked right, about right. from it. But then labor notes put out this big, nice, long, you know, detailed description of, of the struggles of the reform slates and, and Teamsters for Democratic Union and, and the, the victories they were able to win at this convention. Right. And because yeah. the Teamsters have a, a rule where whenever they have a convention or an election, all of the rank and file participate directly. It's a one worker, one vote rule. Right. But for a long time. James Hoffa had been circumventing the will of the workers and pushing through things that had been voted down by like 55 and 57% by instating a two thirds rule that I think the wording of it was that if less than 50% of the rank and file vote or less than a two thirds vote is, um, is reached, reached yeah. then it doesn't have to be ratified by uh, union management, which is <laughs> insane and not an acceptable way to run your union organization. Yeah, like like the the big example that they they mention in here is the current UPS contract, which right. seems to really have been like the big catalyst for a lot of the new support that the TDU reform slate has has managed to draw because like exactly what you were talking about, um, that was a situation where more than half of the UPS workers voted against accepting that contract. But because of that two thirds clause, the uh, the bargaining committee from the international union was able to just say, well. You didn't hit this threshold, so we get to decide whether you have the contract or not. You know, I think that uh, in the union busting thing that I faced, this was an example that the union buster used to to say that the union was bad. It's like, you know, even if you <sighs> yeah. all vote, even if you all vote for it, the union can just do whatever they want. They can go <laughs> over your head, and like it just it it is bad. It's bad uh, policy, and it's really bad PR. 
And like that that that's another thing is it does look bad because it yeah. is. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it was so bad to the point with um, the way that the union management was handling it in the Teamsters that in this Labor Notes article, I don't think it's in the notes that we actually pulled, but they were talking about a woman, um, Kilpack, uh, what was her name? Gabriella Kilpack, a UPS driver and local trustee from Salt Lake City, uh, who apparently, quote-unquote, got a taste of the traditional vitriol as one of the handful of Teamsters United Delegates in Denver, which is the current leadership's home turf, the guy, um, Verma, who, who Hoffa handed off to recently. And apparently the crowd there booed Kilpack when she spoke on the virtual convention floor. A man followed her outside to call her a coward, and another person kept threatening her, some people here want to beat you the fuck up. Just for yeah. going and saying, like, we need, we need reform in the Teamsters. We need to make it a more democratic and directly democratic institution. They mentioned in here that, that one of the big differences for this one is because of COVID, instead of, you know, having the convention at, in, like, Las Vegas at, like, a convention center or something like right. would have been done in the past, this has been handled mostly online. There have been, you know, the local gatherings where the locals will get together in person, but the whole... Um, discussion was all held online. And so that actually did because of those types of intimidation tactics that have been used by the, I guess, to be nice, the more moderate uh, <laughs> slate you mean that's the, been in power. The neoliberals, the Alinskyists. The, the, the business union slate that has, yeah. has yeah. sort of been in power for so long that that uh, like physical intimidation was much less of a hurdle this time. Although like, as you, as you noted from that quote, certainly not a, a completely absent one. Um, and they had a, they had a quote in here, uh, specifically from, uh, uh, Fred Zuckerman, who's the president of Louisville Lo- Teamsters local 89 and is the basically second name on the, the TDU backed Teamsters United reform ticket who said, okay. quote, the international union treats our members like they're stupid and they're not. They're very intelligent. They know what's going on. We found out that our members are willing to take on a fight as long as leaders have their back. And, and that's the thing. It's like, as you, you'll, we've read stories before from, you know, people, UPS, like specifically, I think we were talking about the Teamsters voting, um, to unionize Amazon. There were people in there who were saying basically, yeah, being with the Teamsters is great. We need to organize these people, but they came out and said, but also we need to fix the Teamsters because this UPS contract is bullshit and it's killing us. Like there was a a quote in here from, from uh, Willie Ford, who's the president of local 71 in Charlotte, who said that basically because uh, since the pandemic began, because of the stipulations of the contract, many of the drivers are hitting their legal maximum of 70 hours behind the wheel a week. And it said, quote, this is really taxing on their body. Something has to be done. And that sort of conditions, I, I mean, workers aren't, like, like they said, workers aren't stupid. They're, they're, they know why those conditions are happening. And mm-hmm. we've seen from this convention where the Teamsters United slate got more than 50% of the delegates to, as part of the nomination to get on the, the final you know, votes for mm-hmm. who's going to run the union uh, that's going to happen later in the year. That for the first time, they actually breached that 50%. And, you know, I think this has got to be like probably the primary cause of it is that well, workers are now seeing the effects of that sort of business union organizing and they've had enough of it. 
Yeah, I think that it also could could be stated that if for people who are maybe are not as plugged into like that deeper union movement to be when someone's like, oh, the members aren't stupid and someone might be like, oh, nobody's saying that. Well, that, that's actually kind of not true. Um, there are real like historically the way that unions have been co-opted was kind of based on this issue of, you know, we need professional organizers because sometimes the workers themselves get in the way of organizing. Organizing. Right, that right. sort of that that sort of thing is not uncommon if you actually go in and read labor history of the reason why we shifted to business unionism and these other failing tactics that are totally like top down and and anti-democratic and and this is why we need to move back to that democratic method is because there was a real belittling of workers and and the and the whole structure that is like I mean this person was threatened basically because Absolutely. they were fighting for the democracy in the union which is the effective way to build power because if you're not building power like if if all of the workers aren't con- convinced that when they fight back that it is their choice to fight back and it is in their interest and they have been educated on on different like worker you know stuff because a lot of people are trained to be like well you know the union's taking care of it or oh you know that's i'm not the expert here or whatever but we we need to really be empowering people because when we call people stupid sometimes they believe it well and it's yeah, just and not like, true if you're gonna be like a fucking professional organizer what that means is that you don't assume like management and responsibility for whatever workers that are like now under your care or whatever that means that you like lead by example you educate and you you empower these workers to have self-ownership and self-determination in their workplace because it's just like national struggles. It's just like any other class struggle. Like an important part of it isn't just that you're granted rights or granted autonomy. It's that you're also granted the tools and the education to determine your own future so that you don't have to defer to some expert outside of like you know the public opinion outside of the people who are living the experience in the workplace or in the country or in the social class or whatever that you're trying to organize right and and the other thing i think to 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 both your points like a a key part of that to to do effective organizing versus just management right it takes an understanding that like education is a two-way street it's not just, you know, yep. you doing political education with the workers. It's you learn it learning from them and and the workers learning from each other. Like it it is a collective experience of education, not just, you know, t- preaching from the pulpit. And I, I'm borrowing heavily from pedagogy of the oppressed here, but I think it's it's a it's a critical understanding of like if we want to build actual democratic structures, our educational processes have to be democratic informed too. Not and not just you know to to as a sort of example to build from, but because that's an that's the effective way of doing things. Like people right. actually going out there and having these experiences, know stuff that you aren't going to know coming in from the outside. And the only way you're going to make advances is to learn the very valuable lessons you're going to be able to get from all your coworkers and the other right. people you're organizing and this, with. And this is foreign to anyone who's maybe not even heard these words in this order because this is intuitive. <laughs> This is right. how we learn when you're when you're say you know, like if if for any reason someone uh, might listen to this and be like, well, that's not how it's done. You know, it's the, it's always that it's not that's not how it's 
done. It's like, that's not how it works. Cause it is how it works. You know, we right, do right. learn from each other. We do like when we make decisions together, we are, we make more effective actions. Uh, I, I, I think that there is, and this is another thing going back to like, the workers aren't dumb. You're not dumb. Right. Like, right. like this is like, this is intuitive because it's accurate. <laughs> Right. Well, and uh, our, our next story is a really great way to take the kind of 30,000 foot view of this, which is that like, you know, if you want to wonder like, oh, what's the what's the need for labor education? What's the need for that two way symbiotic developmental street between organizers and workers and everything? It's right here as plain as day in a fucking CNN article, one of the most bourgeois outlets of all time, <laughs> yeah. uh, where they're telling you CEO, CEOs made 299 times the average worker last year. These are median in incomes between the your your median CEO income and your median worker income was a 200 and uh, 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 what what would it be a 29,900 di- yes. percent disparity between the worker income <laughs> and the CEO income so like the idea that a worker would be too stupid to understand how they're being trampled over is the idea that a worker w- would look at something look at object A and then look at object B, which is 299 times larger and be like, I don't really see a difference. I'm just a simple (laughs) factory worker. Like, (laughs) yeah, like some of the, like, obviously that I, I almost hesitated to put this story in here because like, as there's like workers aren't dumb work. Everybody knows the bosses are obscenely paid completely out of line with anything related to their quote unquote labor and what they provide to the businesses, if anything, but like these numbers are insane. Like the fact that Mm -hmm. that's the other thing is, is because these are median numbers. Like you were saying, they're not, they're not the extremes because they mentioned that the average, cause this is, and this is pulling from the S and P 500, um, which is, you know, the, the big blue chips that are considered to be the the most standard of the economy in the United States. Right. right. It's the stuff that they force your mutual fund to invest in. Uh, I really recommend listening to the uh, true and on series on Tesla about that. Um, but they mentioned here that the average executive at the S and P 500 company has had their compensation increased to over $15.5 million a year, which is an increase of over a quarter of a million dollars over the past decade. And like, that increase, you know, because we're so used to seeing these insane numbers, may not even necessarily sound that crazy since it's over 10 years. Right. But you compare it to the average production and non-supervisory worker who in 2020 earned an average of $43,500 a year. So like, you know, twenty one fifty an hour. And that has increased only $957 over the past decade. Not like that's not even a hundred dollars a year yeah. average increase. That's, that's not keeping right. up with the rate of inflation. That's not keeping up like, with based, home prices, based, the price of a loaf of bread. That's not keeping yeah. up with anything. Right. Based on my experience living life, that is very true. I mean, like that yeah. is, it's, 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 it's I well, I guess I was gonna say it's a stagnation, although it's really actually moving backwards. I mean, like as as I was you know getting into my later twenties, I was slipping further and further into debt every single sure. day. 
Like, and, and there's no way out of it. My, my dad used to say shit like, God, I wish I could make the money my dad made. And now I'm here living in 2021. Like, oh my God, I'm only making the money my dad made. Like, what the <laughs> yeah. fuck? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they, they mentioned that, you know, that's the other thing about this is the context of spe- the specifics over the last year with the pandemic, where like, you know, we've seen tens of millions of people thrown out of work or forced into, you know, in, unsustainably low hours be, because of the pandemic and its, and its effects. And the fact that the government has done essentially nothing to help people like the, the checks should have been the, the $2,000 once a month, at least not $1,400 once. Uh, meanwhile, yeah, not insane unemployment screenings, <laughs> not all kinds of Byzantine unemployment benefits, uh, uh, structures that people are barely equipped to navigate because there's no public outreach about how to use social services in this in country whatsoever. In addition to removing prote- protections for workers when it comes to mm-hmm. any sorts of protections from COVID and specifically only protect, like putting out protections for healthcare workers, which healthcare workers did have been trying to fight against to get everybody protected, but that's still, you know, it's probably not going to happen. I mean, like there, there's just attacks on every front. It, yeah. It, it's not just your boss. It's it's the it's the state like this, the state and your boss are both they're both trying trying to like you know do this sort of thing and and there's a reason why it's allowed and it is considered the standard of our economy the S and P that is because the state wants to support that those are the numbers that they care about they don't care about the that that forty three thousand dollars going up a thousand dollars or whatever they don't care about that that's that's an unimportant number to them because yeah. it's really about the 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 bottom line and, and, right. and you you are not you're you're just a, a line item that is easily mm-hmm. to be easily written off and, and tying back to what Dan said earlier this is this is these are fucking median numbers so the outliers are totally omitted and the fact that like the wealthiest people in the world, the 1% of the 1% or however you want to think about them are so much are making so much more money than they were making before than this. Like what, what's being expressed in this article is your run of the mill CEO. These are the people who own like small restaurant chains and little department stores and, and fast food major franchisees and slumlords and shit. Like these are, this is not Bezos whose wealth has gone up by like more money than a medium sized country's like GDP plus savings. Like <laughs> yeah, this is like you're the CEO of, I don't know, sheets or something. Sure, exactly. Exactly. Regionally, and, and, the CEO of Culver's or, right. or fucking uh, Zaxby's. Zaxby's, yeah. The, but the, uh, the, there's just one other thing from here, though, that I did want to mention because th- I, I will give I will give uh, this the writer of this article some credit because they did take a look at you know one of the common ways that CEOs will obfuscate this because you saw a bunch of companies during the pandemic where their CEO would be like, okay, you know, we understand people are hurting. And so I'm going to make a sacrifice to help out everybody at the company. I'm going to take no salary this year. They point out though, that the vast majority of CEOs make almost none of their money from their salary. It's all in stock options. And that like of that average salary of $15.5 million that each one of these CEOs is earning, almost all of it, 15 million of it, in fact, on average is stock compensation. So this supposed sacrifice that they're making 
is just a, a smoke screen to try and get people to forget about this absurd level of inequality and that all of that wealth that they're getting is directly stolen out of your pocket. Yeah, it's a PR move by some PR agent or accountant who was like, hey, you could give yourself less publicly obvious money and raise your more incidental payments, which is where you make most of your money anyway. And the CEOs are like, damn, I could do that. They're like, yeah, you get good PR and you still get to siphon off the same amount, if not more, of all of your workers' productivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so what we then see these people doing to transition into our next story is these same people, you know, they'll take that giant compensation and they'll go and they'll buy some small company and then they'll shut it down because they can make more money that way. And that's that's exactly what we've seen happen in, in this next story, which is, is coming to us from NewsClick, which, by the way, I really recommend for folks looking for uh, news about what's going on in India. And this is uh, talking about a dozens of workers in the, the town of Satrati, which I am sure I'm saying wrong, in the in- Indian state of Madhya Pradesh, who have been on hunger strike for a week now after the closing of the factory that made up one of the largest employers in their town. Uh, this, is, this area is like the biggest cotton producing region in India. And, and specifically these folks were workers at a yarn factory uh, run by a company, Century Yarn and Denim Mills. Right. And this place had employed hundreds of workers, specifically it originally employed over 900 folks. And it's, this has kind of got a long drawn out uh, backstory. Basically, this company that's been producing, you know, yarn and basic cloth inputs for decades, I, I believe, from from what I was reading in the background of this, uh, was originally sold back in 2017, a week after the original owners, uh, the Aditya they promised not group, to, right? Yeah, after they promised the workers they were not going to sell it, they immediately sold it. The new buyers closed it down, which left again 900 workers unemployed immediately. I want to I want to uh, dwell on that just for a moment because because this is exactly uh, a, a very common practice which is to cuz you can't like this reminds me actually of the uh of the the first interview we did when we were talking with the the evil foods people and how they're like yeah this is very sudden we didn't know and we didn't get the funding and blah 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 yeah. but it doesn't like funding doesn't happen overnight you don't have someone show up and be like right. yeah I'd like to buy your factory oh sorry have to I I told the workers earlier today that we weren't <laughs> going to do this but I guess now we're going to because suddenly everything has changed and a week later everything's different that's just not true Right. Like that—that's never true. These things are planned. That well, like, this, this, they had every this, intention of lying to these workers just so that they wouldn't get mad. I mean, the, yeah, the Aditya Birla group that owned this factory had been trying to do the same thing for like years at a stretch. Like yeah. Dan was saying, they tried to sell it after promising they weren't going to sell it, and then the state was like, "Okay, you can't do that. That's illegal." And they the ownership reverted back to Aditya Birla, and the factory closed again in May 2018, and then the Birla group sold the company again last week. So it's just been this ongoing saga of them constantly trying to fuck these workers out of their jobs because they're a $48.3 billion a year company 
and they're taking like marginal losses on a yarn factory or whatever. Yeah, which whenever you hear this stuff about, because you'll hear this from major companies that do these closures, they'll be like, well, we just couldn't, the place, it, it wasn't operating efficiently. It's been operating right. at a loss. We couldn't keep it. The reason in any of these places, almost all the time, are operating at a loss. What they mean by that is it's not operating at a sufficiently high profit margin right. for it to be worth it to our shareholders, which is not the same thing as it not being an actual, you know, profitable business. Right. It's producing value, not just for the company, but also like for the region and for the right. economy. Like it's a functional, and at least at this stage of capitalist development in India or whatever, like it's a functional part of the regional economy. It's a boon to the community. And they're just like, well, it should be making 11.6% and it's only making 9.2% and our shareholders don't like that. So we're going to put almost your entire town out of a job. Yeah. And the thing about these the, that's led to this this current you know hunger strike that these workers are on, and what what led to this story about you know this being so atrocious is that in the aftermath of this sale and now the workers protesting, there's now been a crackdown by the local police in concert with the the new ownership to that has used laws that have been put in place to protect people during COVID to try and break up these protests. So the, the workers mentioned that the state has, has set up a small police camp a few meters away from the protest site, and they've put up, you know, like bullhorns that have been blaring this recorded statement that says, quote, Section 144, which is the section of the Indian Penal Code that prohibits unlawful assembly during an emergency, which has been invoked during COVID, but it's yeah, section it 144. Also, I just want to say it was also has been used against the farmer's strike yep. and almost every other movement. And if you'll, mm -hmm. I mean, if our, our longtime listeners will remember. Yeah. So they're using this law that was, is nominally supposed to keep people safe, but right. Realistically, this is the other thing. If you look at all these other stories, like the BJP is having these gigantic electoral rallies with no COVID controls whatsoever. No invocation of Section 144 there. But here, they've got this loudspeaker constantly blaring, Section 144 has been imposed and this protest is illegal. The factory issue is over. It has been sold. Please return to your homes. Jesus and, Christ. And they have a quote in here from the local magistrate who said that, well... Section 144 is in view, place in view of COVID-19 and gatherings of more than five people are prohibited. Besides, no one can protest within 200 meters of the factory. Hence, we are urging the protesters to end the agitation. The protesting workers should wait until the new management takes over and decides about the factory. <laughs> and like, these people have had their livelihoods taken from them because uh, some, you know, private equity firm basically has decided it's more profitable to shut the place down than to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And so these folks whose job at this place was, you know, providing them with the means for their families to live have had that pulled out from under them. And you're telling them, oh, no, no, just go home and, and wait and see if maybe right. the management will be nice to you. And, and on top of all of this, one of the other things that the workers union had to file a petition about with the state court was that the company made a decision to hand out voluntary retirement schemes to all of the employees without their consent, subsequently sending a meager amount of the of said voluntary retirement scheme, not the, in, the total in, amount they're entitled to, to their accounts and then asking them to vacate 
Eradicate, which is basically a move saying like, here's a here's some walking around money. Get out of the get out of the building, and like you can't fucking do that. That's an obvious corporate move to try and signal that like this process is over and we're ushering you out. And these workers are saying like, look, we don't want VRS. We never agreed to VRS. We want our fucking jobs. We want employment. And so they, they said the company deliberately gave VRS to the protesting employees without their consent and sent a meager amount to their accounts. It is now asking them to vacate uh, the staff quarters via notice. Meanwhile, Birla again sold the company by violating industrial laws, alleged prominent social activist Meta Patkar, uh, who joined the hunger strike. So, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty fucked on every front, you know. Uh, one one thing that I I find as the way that my brain has has finally been like shifted around to to look at it's like it's this idea of waiting for a management company to come in and deal with this uh, just being such a such a hilarious concept to me. Like they have a union. They could just right. go into the factory and keep working, like like that. That's that's the thing is the the whole idea that you need some sort of private property owner in order for anything to function. Like magically, that's the that's the gear that gets everything moving is so ridiculous to me. And, yeah. and I and I really wish that there weren't like like even because if they went in and did that, these police would crack down on them like like with violence, instantaneously and, like, with, with extreme yeah. violence. Yeah, that's exactly why that police camp is there. It's not because. Yeah. That there that these protesters are in any way a threat to anyone in the There's area. There's no one in the building. <laughs> oh my god, they're yeah. sitting around not eating. What will we do? Yeah. Like they're not threatening anybody. Like yeah, they they are terrified of of the workers. You know, Going understanding. In. Yeah, right, right. That you know they're the ones who make this factory run, not the fucking people in some office building thousands or hundreds of miles away looking at numbers on a spreadsheet to decide whether it's, you know, in line with the company's projected profit rate for that quarter to keep a thousand people working or not. Like these people, I'm sure (laughs) could run this place better than the people that were the previous owners from the Beerla group who assuredly, you know, were cutting corners to make short-term profits that then mm-hmm. led to, you know, longer-term problems as we see over and over and over again with this sort of management. Yeah. And then they so, have to rely on the fucking state to send in their fucking police dogs to to monitor these workers so they don't get any bright ideas about like just running the factory themselves. And, uh, you know, speaking of state repression and and speaking of uh, the institutional ways that workers are shut out from their rights and their livelihoods, we want to talk about public workers in Massachusetts who are launching a new push to repeal Massachusetts state law, which bans public sector workers from striking. Uh, And it has support from what the article calls progressive members of the state legislature uh, to repeal this law, the state law, which stipulates that, quote, no public employee or employee organization shall engage in a strike and no public employee or employee organization shall induce, encourage, or condone any strike, work stoppage, slowdown, or withholding of services by such public employees, which... I love that work slowdown is included in there because it's just yeah. like it, that it feels like a really, really like just loose rule that you could just use on anyone. Like, yeah, like absolutely. Well, it's a matter of human rights, right? Like, uh, and I think uh, this state representative, Erica Uiterhoven, I hope I'm saying that somewhat correctly, uh, really highlights well uh, when she says, when she calls the withholding of labor a fundamental human right. And like, you know, I, 
sometimes I take issue with the idea that like we should just appeal to fundamental human rights. Like human rights are not granted. They are hard, hard fought. Like they must be won. But like these are people who are trying to win this right for the workers of Massachusetts, which is like really sensible. Like you got to think about it. Like there are so many situations in which people are forced to work, whether it's slavery or whether it's inhumane conditions or lack of pay or lack of benefits. And of course these are all taking place on totally different, uh, you know, graduated parts of, of the same scale. But like the only way to fight back against that in many, many situations is to withhold labor. And if there's any activity that should be protected, it's absolutely that because it's one of the most effective ways to get anything done. Yeah. And, and we've talked about, you know, states, other states in the past where they have similar laws like this that ban unionized public employees from striking. I just happen, I mean, since this is happening right nearby for me, I I do think that it's a, a little ironic with the. In the progressive image that that Massachusetts likes to portray is is, mm-hmm. is you know the 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 blue super blue state and it's supposed to be you know the the human face on American capitalism but at the same they're doing the same exact sort of exploitative rules and the other thing that I think is important to note about this struggle that these public employees are having to fight for is this is exactly why you don't it's not a good trade to get a union if you have to take a labor peace agreement along with it. Right. Like, as we've talked about, you know, with with the burgeoning uh, recreational marijuana industry, like, I think you're going to see a lot of folks who are initially, like, excited about the idea, hey, we'll get our union, we're not going to have to go through, understandably, the incredibly difficult struggles that are, are forced on workers to get an NLRB recognized union because the deck is completely stacked against you. But you can see from these workers' example here how vital the right to strike that you're giving up with by writing into law things like labor peace agreements are and how clearly this indicates, you know, that these workers feel that their unions cannot do an appropriate job of representing them and fighting for their rights because of laws like this. Right. And this was especially highlighted in Massachusetts because uh, uh, a lot of the public workers, especially teachers, really felt like they were being screwed over and absolutely rightfully so by the push to constantly work in increasingly unsafe uh, COVID conditions. And they said last um, last year, teachers in Andover were determined by the Commonwealth Employee Relations Board to have gone on an illegal strike when they refused to enter the school building for professional development ahead of the start of the 2020 school year. And uh, Massachusetts Teachers Association Association President Mary uh, Najmi said, last year in too many districts, educators and students were compelled to put their health, safety, and yes, even their lives on the line by being forced to return to their schools in spite of poor ventilation and other safety concerns. This was something that was never expected. They had no recourse. And it might sound dramatic that she says something like they had to put their lives on the line, but like, take a look (laughs) at COVID death statistics. Take a look at the number of people who have been killed in unsafe workplaces or otherwise exposed to COVID because of the conditions in close friends and families, unsafe workplaces. And you tell me that these administrative decisions and these decisions by employers in the state are not out and out, basically murder of a large 
of an unusually large percent of their population. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, that's exactly what it is. And, you know, honestly, I think that the the consistent thing is I've been called dramatic many times in my life. And maybe in certain same. cases I am. But but really, <laughs> if you if if you look at like what is actually happening, I mean the deaths are very real. The work conditions are very real. The, the, the suppressing of people's rights is very real. And, and, I, and, and the idea that I'm supposed to belittle it or supposed to be tempered or what is, is that is that I'm getting, I'm getting upset about people dying. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, yeah right yeah i, I don't well, know there's the it's just this weird kind of um like what do you call it, it it's paternal it's it's like ba- it's basically just a belittling of anyone to say oh you're just being a naive dramatic child and, and i and i and i don't that's bullshit you're not being dramatic you're being realistic and serious yeah i mean i really feel like when you bring up the concern about the number of people who have died and then people are like oh you're just being dramatic oh it's not that bad oh this is just a normal part of like history or the way the world works or whatever it gives me real like professor farnsworth from futurama vibes being like science cannot progress without heaps referring to like heaps of dead lab monkeys and it's like yeah. you know th- yes it can like it absolutely can there, there is a, a better future is possible a better present has always been possible you know that's well, right and and the pandemic has given us the most obvious comparison for this because like you were saying you had these teachers here in massachusetts where they don't have the right to strike even though they have a union Mm -hmm. being forced back to school in in clearly unsafe conditions and in this specific case not even for classes but for professional development i don't know why you couldn't do that online we're doing covid trust falls (laughs) this week yeah Uh. like (laughs) you look at the in situation in chicago where the ctu who you know do have the right to strike although to be frank i think they would strike whether they had their right or not uh absolutely because of how strong their union is um we're like no fuck that we're going on strike and you until you agree to make these conditions safe to prioritize vaccinations for people who are going to be put into close contact with other people and to make allowances for people who you know are immunocompromised or otherwise can't come into work during a pandemic and they were able to win those demands because they were able to go on strike so like also because they're reasonable demands oh absolutely so like it, it it's not like this is some you know abstract theoretical who knows whether the right to strike matters it's like it, in we know exactly how important that is and the pandemic has just made it even more clear and and so i obviously i'm very i'm hopeful that massachusetts would repeal this but of course unsurprisingly uh, at the same time as this uh, move to repeal the law has come up there's been a compromise proposal oh boy that has been been thrown out there by the moderate dems in in the mass state house Uh that instead of repealing the ban would allow public sector workers to strike under quote limited circumstances including a failure by management to bargain in good faith which again we have seen how difficult it is to prove that yep uh even Uh, though it happens all the time in my opinion it's a hundred percent of the time Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and it then also, it would not apply to police, fire workers, jail, prison, or other correctional facility employees. And I understand why, you know, because we, the police should not exist. 
and we want to abolish them, that might seem fine. But I will point out that the police going on strike tends to be good because then they're not on the streets harassing and murdering people. Yeah, <laughs> right. that's, so, absolutely. that's right. So this compromise you know, shit I want, is, I want, is I just a way to, to defend strike and then be like, sorry, we got to close down now because you're on the strike. If only striking police were treated the same way as other striking workers. Right. Yeah. yeah my God. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, there isn't more police to break their strike lines. On the police almost yeah. never have to fucking strike because they ask yeah. the government for shit and they just get it. They get it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is how you know that, you know, cops aren't workers. So, yeah. And that's the other thing so they'll deliberately throw cops into the mix alongside like firefighters and nurses right. and people who really matter uh because they'll they they want to confuse the issue and they want to make right, you exactly. think, oh no what if this affects law enforcement and that is difficult sometimes because law enforcement is a topsy-turvy world where the workers are the bad guys and well i guess also their bosses are the bad guys everyone's a bad guy <laughs> like <laughs> yeah so yeah. i don't know uh i guess in in the thought of of like making things clearer, I, I this next uh, article is actually it's a beer article, so we're going to be covering Great Lakes Brewing Ooh. Company, uh, which I is love pretty Great cool. Lakes. And uh, I mean, Great they're beer. they're worker owned, uh, right? And so so if with that, when if you remember some of our other what is it, Aesop's e- e- Foibles, I believe is the name <laughs> yes. of yeah. name of the episode. It's one of the ones that I always remember because of. <laughs> How One of my favorite titles that y'all came up with. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but but this uh, company, Great Lakes Brewery Brewing Company, uh, is a ESOP, a basically just a, a employee owned stock program where the the employees are owners in a certain sense in that they can get it's basically just a profit sharing they're shareholders uh, things yeah they're shareholders yeah. but the they don't necessarily have any say on a day-to-day basis of how their work conditions are and so they have created the great lakes organizing committee the great lakes brewing organizing committee great lakes organizing committee glock Glock. Yeah, Glock. That's what it was. Glock. <laughs> you know, I keep that MF thing on me. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, uh, and and so they're fighting for for more democracy in their workplace, and and I. I just love to see it. it was like you know, the idea that employee owned, I hate, you know, I don't even think ESOPs should be allowed to be called employee owned. Like no. that's not what, it, that's not just, what ownership is. Call it an enhanced 401k. Yeah. That's what yeah. It is. It's a very Republican idea of like worker ownership, which is like, you'll get, you'll get a benefits just like a CEO gets benefits, stock options and dividends. And it's like, okay, but they're peanuts. They're like the peanuts dividends and stock right. options. They're the leftovers. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Cause like they neglect to point out that, you know, uh, I could elaborate on how this is also sort of true. I mean, in real life, but it's not one person, one vote in a company. It's one share, one vote, which right. is a big, important difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's also true in American democracy, but yeah, no, like yeah, as you were big saying, Citizens United hours. Right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like, but it's an interesting mirror in this way, but like, this is a rare case where we've got folks who are unionizing and mostly in this article, all we heard pretty much was praise for how, uh, the company runs it for things, how working surprised. conditions are. Mm-hmm. They, they had a quote in here from a member of the organizing committee who said, we feel very good about where we're at right now. The overwhelming majority of workers love working at Great Lakes. We wouldn't be doing this otherwise. A lot of people think that unions are a referendum on working conditions, but for most of us, it's about making a good place to work a great place to work. And mm-hmm. 
and and like exactly what you were saying, Lena, like it's, de- it definitely certainly sounds like, you know, from the quotes that were in this, that it, that Great Lakes is a good place to work. Yeah. Although like any, any business like this, I'm sure things could be better, but they, they really f- heavily focused on the fact that the company made this, you know, quote unquote grand gesture a couple of years ago to become quote unquote employee owned, but as good as conditions have continued to be relatively for workers working there, they still don't really have a say in how things are done at the facility. And right. so that it, in this case is, is the primary goal for their organizing committee. And, and they're, they're hopeful that, you know, the, the company will voluntarily recognize their union and that they'll be able to just move forward that way and, and have increased say, but <laughs> I mean, we've seen how how rare that is, so it'll it'll be an interesting story to continue well, following. Yeah, on that I like this for a lot of reasons, and and really, I think it's the, you know, maybe I think they should be more critical of their workplace or whatever. But I also like that, like, even in a situation where they feel like comfortable saying, like, "Look, I like working here. This is a nice place to work," and that's reassuring because I've had jobs I liked. Not every workplace is a total <laughs> shithole, but like. The fact that even in those situations where you're like, I have a good job, I'm taken care of, I make a good amount of money, you're still like, wow, you know, I'd like a bigger say in how things are handled here. And there's still improvements to be made. I think we'd we'd stand to benefit from a union, right, folks? And everyone's like, yeah, like, that's fucking awesome. Because, like, there are so many people in this country who are like, well, I got mine. Things are good enough. I'm just going to coast here. And uh, that's not how... That's not how you build solidarity. That's not how you continue to improve your life. That's not how, like, they. I think some of these workers know probably that, like, if they don't take a more active role in it now, the the little gesture that was given to them, that little quote unquote worker ownership gesture, is going to start getting eroded away. And they're like, no, yeah. this is an opportunity to move forward. Absolutely, and, like, that's awesome. You should you should even no matter how good you have it, you should be like, I can make things better for me and the people around me. Like, absolutely. Right. I think one thing to think about when it comes to that complacency is the idea that like this is an capitalism is incredibly volatile like Mm -hmm. the idea that the company exists is like is temporary like all of this shit is temporary including whatever gains you've gotten and if you're not continually fighting to raise up work conditions i mean you got to remember when you raise up work conditions in your business you are raising up work conditions in other businesses when because i I mean like all those business owners talk to each other and they realize that if they don't make things better you know maybe they're gonna end up with a union and you know hopefully they do anyway but I mean, you can't just like, you can't coast. It's not, I mean, there's, it's not an option because if you coast, you are coasting downhill. Yeah. It reminds me of the classic minimum wage conversation that we always have in this country, which is like people who make somewhere in the twenties, like let's say $25 an hour. They're like, if you raise the minimum wage to 15, that's going to make, you know, I worked so hard to get to 25 and it's going to yeah. belittle the wage that I make and it might even devalue it and all of this shit. And then like when I see these workers who have a good working situation relatively still fighting to improve it, that's the action that reflects what I think is the correct response to that, which is you should be paid more too. 25 isn't yeah. enough. Like if you work so hard, you should make 30 or 35 or whatever. Like I'd love to fight for you too. And that's awesome. That's the energy that is missing from a lot of the that's missing from the attitude that I think people get to because of all the cynicism that they end up having because they see a lot of defeats or whatever. And I that cynicism is justified, but you can't let it make you think that like 
there's no out or there's not going to be opportunities for like positive improvement in the future. Well, and there's also so much indoctrination because like this is the thing like because coming from like a STEM background and having, you know, worked surrounded by uh, engineers and, and folks with who basically have this same attitude of, you know, hey, why would I why would we need a union? We got we I make good money. We got good benefits. Mm-hmm. Please, people, fellow STEM folks. Learn from these people. These people's consciousness is much higher than yours. <laughs> they understand this issue incredibly well. This is exactly what I was talking about at the beginning with like the whole two-way collective education thing. Because like these folks get it. And like we can learn a lot from exactly like what you've been saying about their understanding of the importance of that collective action, even if you're not in, you know, the most crushing horrifically exploitive uh working environment yeah so right? we're definitely wishing glock the best uh absolutely yeah. <laughs> and uh hopefully we'll get to follow up with them i noticed that some of their things were from people who didn't want to be named and so i'm guessing that uh we're not going to be able to get an interview with them until they are more on the uh public facing side of the of the union but hopefully we will considering they're just over in ohio right but you know not not too far from where a lot I'd of us that. have lived and, and been for a lot of our lives so yeah, I mean, I would drive down to uh, Ohio just to drink the beer. If I had a chance to talk to the workers, <laughs> my God, I'd, I'd be there. In <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's uh, let's move to the meme review, the classic, the the the, the staple, the the you know, idle downhill. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, least one. depressing part of the show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So the first yeah. one we have is, is a meme about leaving your job, which I always love memes about leaving a fucking job. It's the fucking best. But it just says my coworkers after I put my two weeks in. And then it's the kid. Uh, he's like wearing a headset or something. He's from The Simpsons. And he's looking at a skull and he just goes, I don't think he's coming back. <laughs> yeah. I, it's made me think of the many different times we've seen people's quitting stories in the in the Discord. Uh, join the Discord so and tell us your best quitting stories because, yeah. like, I I eat that shit up. I mean, like, I I always like seeing people organizing and building power, but also it's totally like reasonable to throw that company the middle finger sometimes, and that that hey, is you gotta know when good. to hold them. You gotta know when to fold them. Am I right? Like sometimes a job is just a place you need to get out of. Like it, yeah, it happens. That's right. like, <laughs> the, these motherfuckers don't respect you. They are stealing from you every day you are there. Mm-hmm. You do not owe them two weeks unless you absolutely have to have that now, reference. And and you, the people on the internet or they'll make memes. They'll be like, as a you should really you know stay out your two weeks as a courtesy to the other workers. You don't want to no. put them in a tough spot. Any tough spot that they're put in due to your because, absence is a yeah. management failure. That's not That's your fucking correct. fault. You, right. you, you have no responsibility for that. Also, I mean, like the idea of putting in your two weeks for the reference also technically doesn't matter because they can't necessarily give you a bad reference unless it's one of those those companies where like they everything's really personal and then so they but like it's illegal for them to ask it's actually illegal for them to ask the other company how good of a worker you were they're only allowed to provide the the dates in which you were working now that doesn't mean that they don't communicate other things illegally but it is i mean like if we want to talk about labor law you there are no repercussions to quitting and leaving day of you're an at-will employee you're right 
Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, it depends on what what industry you work in. Some industries, the fucking companies all talk to each other. And, like, mm-hmm. they, they will know, like, if you fuck over one company, you're not yeah. welcome at but another company. But if you make you under $20... If you make $120 yeah, no, yeah. an hour, probably fine. No yeah, way. no, fuck that. Just, Just quit leave. with impunity. Yeah. If you're a fucking, if you're yeah. a server or a barista or you work at a convenience store, just fucking walk out one day and never come yeah. back. Like yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the classic, the classic, the share zone. Just hit the bricks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh. Our next one is a no, not that. Yes, that meme. Uh, the, right. the, but this is with um, who? It's Star Trek. The, Dan. Jordy LaForge. <laughs> yeah, this is with Jordy LaForge, chief engineer of the the Starship Enterprise from Next Generation, instead of the the common, you know, like Drake format. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, and who uh, does, I mean, and, like Lavar Burton versus Drake. That's no contest. Come on. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, Lavar Burton in a heartbeat. Like <laughs> right. So and the, also, he 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 should be the new host of Jeopardy. So oh, the, yeah. the 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 turn away or the uh, the no not that uh, panel it, it says next to it, uh, union staffers, self organizing workers. You don't have legal status. I'm referring to whether or not you know the business has a union. And then the yes, this is it. Uh, self organizing workers. Unions were born outside of the law founded on wielding extra legal collective power in the workplace that is correct absolutely like like, and it's just it's this is very similar to that meme of the bobby hill holding up the sign that says just because you don't recognize that we have a union doesn't mean we don't have a union like that's that's what this is saying but it's also kind of adding a little bit of that history in there being like oh yeah well unions were actually entirely illegal for a very long time yeah (laughs) Well, it it, it reminds me of the discourse that's always like surrounding pride, right? Like, should there be cops at pride or whatever? It's like, well, like, look at what it was when it started. It was people throwing bricks at those motherfuckers. Like, if you look back at what the origin of unions is, it's the same thing. It's like, you have to get buck sometimes. You have to get a little wild. And like, Mm -hmm. the idea that now we should have this like nice, tame, captured union movement or social justice movement or whatever is ludicrous. Like that's absolutely counter counterproductive and a way to shoot yourself right in the foot. Yeah. If you, if you really want to win your rights, you uh, might have to, you know, blockade the entrance to your coal mine with a bunch of trucks and that's right. uh, Get get scab bullies tank tops. So you and all your coworkers can blockade all the fucking scabs they're trying to bring in. Yeah. Yeah, You might have to shoot at a boat with 11 Pinkertons on it until they turn around back down the (laughs) Monongahela to head back to Pittsburgh. I mean, like these are, these are, you know, (laughs) the big moments of U S labor history. I love that. We just did like one from this year and then one from like deep history (laughs) (laughs) right next to each other. Same struggle, same fight. Yeah. Yeah, It's all the same fight. Yeah. That's right. Um, so, this next one, there's not a whole lot to this as far as a format. It's a, uh, it's very much a like psychedelic skull why, in the background. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, your, it's your crazy fluorescent skull picture just with text on top of it. But it's an incredibly important message, which is any person who dies because they can't afford food, water, shelter, or healthcare is a person who was killed by capitalism. Yeah, yeah. that's that's true. I mean, very simple. This is just. This is relevant to the common argument, which is like that not only one is like the 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 death total of communism widely insanely inflated and like mostly Nazi propaganda and shit, but also like the the totally equally valid counterpoint that like even if that were true, 
if we tallied up how many people capitalism has killed, it's going to tower over that. It's going to be you know, orders of magnitude larger. Yeah, right. We, we produce enough food for 10 billion people. I will point out there are not 10 billion people on the planet. That's and right. we have logistic systems in place where you can get stuff shipped from one side of the world to the other in a matter of hours. So this this is there's, not a, a matter of capacity. Yeah, there's six empty houses for every homeless person in the United States. There yeah. is no resource sort shortage. There are none. We live in a yeah. in a post scarcity uh, society of production. We just don't live in a post scarcity society of distribution. Period. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. That one also all the empty hospitals. There were rural mm-hmm. hospitals that were privatized yep, and absolutely. shut down and all that. But like anyway, thinking Food speaking of, of, of deaths, I think that this this uh Snapchat <laughs> photo is really interesting. And it could just be like someone photoshopping over this super muscly guy who looks kind of discontent. <laughs> this guy's arms are huge, but uh it's two <laughs> two lines on this Snapchat photo and the one that says I'm fired because I couldn't stop crying, question mark, which obviously is supposed to be like, this is a big, tough guy. Why is he crying? And then the, the yeah. bottom is a raccoon got trapped in the dumpster and died of heat exhaustion, and I'm just supposed to get over it. And oh. I <laughs> love this because this is this is like, you know, this is, goes back to similar uh, that one where we had Labor Kyle on where he's talking about masculinity and what it means and, and, and how, like, having empathy for, like, living things is, like, there's... That's, there's nothing that like should get between you and and that. I, I mean, like, I guess I'm not yeah. the one to speak on this necessarily, I mean, but I I love the sentiment. I I feel it. It's like it's really nice. It's really nice to see dudes being you know like considerate and empathetic, especially dudes that maybe you don't look like they would. Right. I mean, this one really hits home for me because when I was working as a dispatcher for the the pickups for a, um, for a secondhand store, I actually got in trouble for being late to work one day because I was riding my bike down the back of Mount Washington to get to work, and I stopped because I saw it's like it's like uh, late winter. It's it's probably twenty degrees outside, and I stopped because I see a baby raccoon sitting under a car. And I try to help the fucking thing, but it's like hissing and spitting at me. And it's a wild animal. I'm not going to get scratched by it or whatever. So I kind of like give up after a few minutes. And then I'm five minutes late to work. And they're like, why are you late? And I'm like, should I tell them I tried to help a baby raccoon? Or should I just say, I just woke up a little late today. And I lied because I knew they wouldn't fucking care that I tried to stop and help a living thing. They would be like, you shouldn't have, you should have just kept going, you know, or whatever. And it's like, I'm not going to. Not gonna leave a baby animal if I think I might have a chance of helping it get somewhere warm, you know. Well, and I mean, there's also like, it's there's a purpose to a lot of that, you know, institutionalized disemphasis on empathy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it largely focused, you know, on on men, but but really just in general in our society, and that's because like if you have people with a a completely normal and, and important and well developed sense of empathy, they're going to care more about how you know the other people in their lives are treated. 
right. they're probably going to want to help them. And that leads to solidarity. And ooh, we can't be having that. That's dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like you, if, if one of your coworkers gets fired, usually management goes out of their way to kind of disseminate like damaging information about that person and make them seem bad so that the firing feels justified. And you don't have to think like, wow, that person just lost their livelihood. Like there's probably a lot of people who depend on them. And like, there's probably a lot of issues in their life that are going to get much more difficult for them now. Like that's not supposed to be on your mind. What's supposed to be on your mind is like, oh, they weren't a good worker. Got what they deserved. You know, uh, I guess it's just me and you now, bud. You know, like that's, that's what they want you to feel like. And that's not, I mean, like people, I think a lot of people get the idea that like, if you are like a radical or you support like revolutionary change or whatever, that you're like callous and you're ready to like embrace fucking X people over to help Y people. It's like, no, I, I'm doing this because I've like, I, I think this is how we get the most done for the most people. And because that means a lot to me because I, I, care about other people's lives, which might seem insane under a capitalist logic, <laughs> but I think that like it's something that you need to work to develop within yourself. To, to pull out one of my favorite quotes that sort of tangentially transitions into the next meme from Che, from you know Che Guevara, mm-hmm. he said, at the risk of seeming ridiculous, let me say that the true revolutionary is guided by a great feeling of love. It is impossible to think of a genuine revolutionary lacking this quality. And that's hundred percent true. If you can't, you know, actually care, not just for like, you know, pretending or, you know, saying the right words, like you, you need to actually care about people to really fight for what we all collectively as members of the working class deserve. And that is an absolutely essential quality for anybody organizing or really just trying to get through this incredibly crushing and anti-solidaristic society that's been built in this country. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I guess, yeah, speaking of that and transitioning into the next meme, I, I, I wanted to bring this one in because there's, I feel like it's really loaded. And what we're really doing is we're doing a callback to, to Dan's rant at the beginning of the episode that's too right. with this is uh, this is just, it says, if you aren't American, I'm begging you to share this. Uh, we, are being starved and then like two American <laughs> flags and a little like dotted line kind of getting a little just bit like of the SOS like Cuba negative space. Yeah. That they yeah. Always, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Put together. Um and and I guess I was I was thinking about it's like uh this like yes the United States is a fascist country and a, a lot of people in this country are oppressed and then like the idea and there are people being starved uh absolutely I, but, but but then uh just to to think of it in like the idea that you know we're being compared uh to this country that we have been exploiting for for so many people and to to see that exploitation kind of paralleled in that you know through the exploitation of others we're getting exploited exploited ourselves and and all of this it's just i don't know it makes my brain do a lot of things when i see this really thonks your donk i mean like yeah yeah, this is in the same spirit as like so many great posts i've been seeing from people who will set up like an sos usa account and then tweet like at president diaz canel Please, the American people are starving. My family doesn't have, you know, heat in the the Texas snowstorm or, like, doesn't have uh, electricity or doesn't have food. We live in a food desert or we're being oppressed by police. Like, just true shit, just real crimes that the United States commits. But then couching it 
in that rhetorical style that the U.S. uses to talk about enemy states, it's really biting and good. And, and I yeah. think it's just quality well, meme material. Or, you know, like we don't even have to reach outside the podcast or that it's, it's folks who are being fired because they, they don't want to, you know, die of heat exhaustion. Exactly. Working yeah. around a fryer <laughs> during mm-hmm. a heat wave. Mm-hmm. Like for, for all of the, the horrible, effects of the blockade that have impacted Cuba. Like I wish that even a small percentage of the people who don't know anything about the situation there, but have still been tweeting about it would take a few seconds to look at the material conditions within this country and Mm -hmm. maybe reflect on that where we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of homeless people that are constantly being harassed, if not like murdered by both the police, but also just, you know, fascist auxiliaries. While we have six times that many homes, while, you know, we have CEOs making 299 times the average worker and, and, and we're going to call some other country, the place where they need help is just, a, a perfect illustration of the power of the indoctrination that our, our media and the broader tendrils of the U.S. state have on us. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and on that note, I think that'll be the episode. I want to thank you all for listening. If you'd like to support us a little bit more, you can go to patreon.com slash workstoppage. Uh, join the Discord and come hang out with us. Tell us your great quitting stories. Uh, give us a review oh, and yeah. share us with share our podcast with your friends, especially when you see people make, having bad opinions. Feel free to just drop that right in there, and uh, <laughs> they can and then they can be mad at us. That's totally fine. We can handle it. Uh, follow John on uh twitter at <laughs> facebook villain listen to bp Bledis and red game table and remember labor peace is not in our interest solidarity, solidarity. forever that's right solidarity everybody solidarity.